Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast, episode 529, The Bread and the Boat. Well, we're back from Canada. We're ready to jump back into our series on Matthew. And this week, we're going to study actually the only story in Matthew's gospel that isn't directly about Jesus himself. We're also going to learn how Jesus is Lord over everything, including matter itself. And we're going to get a miracle story in two acts. So here we go. Let's jump right in with Matthew chapter 14. Hello again, everyone. If you can believe it, we are on part 29 of our study of uh, Matthew. And today we're going to jump into uh, and look through the whole chapter uh, 14. After um, the parable discourse, chapter 13, that we spent a couple of weeks on, now we're back into the action, into the narrative. Um, And you know, in the broadest of senses, Matthew's gospel is divided into two. Part one is a real focus on discipleship, uh, both um, through teaching. We see that in Sermon on the Mount. We see that in chapter 10, chapter 13. And by demonstration, chapter 8 and 9, we're really seeing it. But now we're in a shift, a transition that will finish in uh, chapter 16. But it's begun now. So part two is really about the road to Jerusalem. And during this transition and beyond, uh, Jesus' true identity will be revealed. We're going to see rising and significant conflict with the powers, the religious and political powers. And then it culminates, of course, with the passion, the crucifixion, and the resurrection. So there's an interesting parallelism between part one and part two, because in part one, you'll remember back in chapter two, we see the death of uh, innocent babies under Herod the Great. Now in part two, we're seeing the death of an innocent prophet, um, and it foreshadows Jesus' death. What Matthew is doing in this chapter among other things, he's showing how the power of unbelief and worldly power both resist the kingdom. Uh, We got to the end of the parables in chapter 13, but we didn't have time, so I'm going to just quickly bring up the last three verses where he shifts away from the teaching into narrative. Matthew 13, 55 to 57. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this not, is his mother not called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all this? And they took offense at him. So now let's jump into chapter 14, and we'll begin with the death of John the Baptist. At that time, Herod the ruler heard reports about Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead, and for this reason, these powers are at work in him. For Herod had arrested John, bound him, and put him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Because John had been telling him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Though Herod wanted to put John to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and she pleased Herod so much that he promised on oath to grant her whatever she might ask. 
Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. The king was grieved, yet out of regard for his oaths and for his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. The head was brought on a platter and given to the girl who brought it to her mother. His disciples came and took the body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. So, as I said, part two of this gospel opens with the death of John. This episode had really important political implications, um, not only for Herod's world, but for Matthew's readers, the church uh, in in the A.D. 70s, uh, because the church was living in a hostile, dangerous Roman world. Now, what happened here, his execution, uh, although it was a, a bit of an aside, he, Matthew takes a break and tells us this background information before he carries on, but this background information happened just before. We know this because in chapter 11, John was still alive. <clears throat> Pardon me. It is the only story in Matthew's gospel that is not directly about Jesus. It's interesting. If you look at it carefully, remember we talked a lot about structure in the first few weeks and looking at the whole and how carefully Matthew constructed all of it. And if you do that, you'll see that that everything that Jesus commands against in the Sermon on the Mount contributes directly to the death of John in Herod's palace. Disrespect for the law, because certainly the law did not allow for that. Uh, The anger of Herod's wife Herodias, lust, adultery, making oaths, uh, and hatred. Let me give you just a little bit of historical background. Herod Antipas was over Galilee and Perea, where John preached and baptized. He was down, Perea was down by the Jordan where he was ministering. Now, John's rebuke, very public and strong rebuke of Herod, would be very dangerous uh, because of the widespread discontent there was uh, in Galilee and in Perea throughout all all Judah. Uh, Judah, there was widespread unhappiness, discontent. And in, in the next section, we'll see a little bit of the political implications of what he did. But in marrying his sister-in-law, who, by the way, because of just the convoluted mess of their family, was also his niece, by doing this, Herod was showing complete contempt for Jewish law. Herod Antipas got nothing but bad results from divorcing his first wife to marry Herodias. Let me explain that. Eretus, um, the Arab king was enraged by Herod divorcing because the one he divorced was the Arab king's daughter. And so he went to war against Herod, and Herod was wiped out, suffered a terrible defeat. Now, you notice in verse 5, it said that Herod had wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people. See, there's a real interesting parallel here uh, with, uh, with Herod, who was weak. 
He was motivated by fear. With Herod and Ahab, remember in 1 Kings, King Ahab was like that. And Herodias, who was, you know, pretty bad, but she was really strong. She kind of pulled his chain. Herodias is parallel with Jezebel. St. Jerome said this, Therefore John the Baptist, who had come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Do you note that? With the same authority whereby the latter was re- had rebuked Ahab and Jezebel, he upbraided Herod and Herodias. What he was doing, this is further proof that he had come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Now, this, this wife, Herodias, I'll tell you, she was something. She pushed Herod to go to Rome and to ask uh, the Romans for a better title, to be made king. Well, they were so offended that instead of that, he had all his property taken, his title taken, and he was sent into exile in Gaul, which would be like Siberia nowadays. Something else historically, decapitation was unlawful for Jews, and also if there was no trial, it was unlawful for Romans. So while Herod was pushed to his actions by Herodias, and although the timing and the method may not have been his choice, the motivation was there. He wanted to get rid of John. He felt threatened by this charismatic preacher of the people. Now, let me just point out a a few observations from the church fathers, because they saw beyond the history, they saw both moral and spiritual lessons in this episode. (coughs) Excuse me. Peter Christologus saw in this that it was actually Herod who was imprisoned by his own sin and that John was the one who was truly free and was offering Herod the freedom of repentance. He said, Peter said this, it is a very easy thing to stray from the path of justice if your eye is on the people instead of God. St. Hilary said this, four factors cause people to give in to sin. An oath, and remember he made an oath, fear of leaders, allurements of pleasure, and a bad example. So, verse 12, his disciples came and took the body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. Again, St. Hilary. We're going to have quite a few quotes today. Now that the time of the law is over and buried with John, John representing the law, his disciples announced to the Lord the events that transpired as they leave the law and come to the Gospels. We talked a little about this several weeks ago, that that John, um, the greatest of the prophets, Jesus called him, was the last of of the old era, the Old Testament era, the law. Well, let's move on to two stories. And when I present these to you today, Some of us, we might even kind of dial back our attention. We may think, oh man, since I was in Miss Smith's grade two class, I've heard about the feeding of the 5,000 and Jesus walking on the water. But let's go deeper because there's gold here. Starting at verse 13, now when Jesus heard this about John's death, 
he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion for them and cured their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and the hour is now late. Send the crowds away so they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Jesus said to them, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. That you is emphasized in the Greek. They replied, We have nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said to them, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And all ate and were filled, and they took up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve baskets. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. The first thing I want you to notice is when Jesus hears about uh, John's death, he recognizes we're coming into a time of political confrontation. And did he stand and say, I'm going to fight him. Give me freedom or give me death. I was reading Patrick Henry the other day. But no, he withdrew. St. Jerome said this, Jesus withdrew to spare his enemies from compounding one murder with another or to defer his death to the day of the Passover. Folks, as you've heard me say again and again, we live in the most highly confrontational uh, season that I ever remember in my whole rapidly getting longer life. If we're going to follow the Jesus way, we don't confront with protests, with Facebook, with whatever your social media platform is. We don't stand up for our rights. We don't say freedom like was so popular 25 years ago with Braveheart. Jesus withdrew to spare his enemies from compounding their sin, one with another. We need to learn to follow the Jesus way. The only miracle, this is the only miracle in all four Gospels. Uh, Jesus, it shows us that Jesus is equal to all human need, both physical and spiritual. Jesus not only cares, and you'll note we just read, when he saw the crowds, he was moved with compassion. But he does something about it. It's not a feeling hit, it compels him. You know, why was he filled with compassion? Well, perhaps the hunger. But remember what's just happened. A great popular hero of the people, a preacher, John the Baptist, in whom they'd hoped great things would come, had just been executed and executed terribly. So they were grieving. They were in confusion. They were in turmoil. This is the environment of this miracle of feeding the 5,000. You know, Matthew sets it up in such a way that the contrast between Herod's feast uh, and and this feeding of the 5,000 is, is powerful and entirely intentional by Matthew. We're moving from a, a lavish but decadent feast at Herod's palace to the simple but wholesome feast that Jesus gives.
We're moving from the destruction of John to the the preservation, the giving of life to 5,000. So let's break it down. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When they went ashore, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and he cured their sick. He had a plan, but he saw the needs of the people. He changed his plan in response to human need. Folks, we know this, but we need to let it get into our hearts. In the 21st century, in a way that other generations wouldn't have even understood, we live rigid, scheduled lives. Most of us have got multiple alerts on our phones and our computers and our iPads, and we go from one thing to another to another. The contrast between Western, especially North American life, in the developing world is so stark. As soon as you go there, whether it's India or Africa or South America, wherever you go, we were just in Bulgaria and we were struck with this again. In the developing world, instead of being directed by by our scheduled life, people are more important than schedule. People's schedules are held very loosely And they change at a moment if somebody shows up. By the way, I want to say that this is more important than we realize. This isn't just cultural or corporate style. This is a watershed in moving toward authentic community. If we stay with tightly, tightly scheduled lives that just get more and more scheduled, we are going to miss authentic biblical community, the two cannot coexist. The other thing we see here is he he saw in the needs of the people an opportunity to be a shepherd, to pastor them. Don't forget, too, that Jesus, fully God, but fully man, was dealing with the grief. He just lost his cousin, his forerunner in ministry. Let's go on. Verse 15. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a deserted place. Now, I want you to notice something. Jesus performed the miracle, but he waited for the disciples to take the initiative. He didn't say to them, boy, those folks are looking pretty hungry. We should do something. He just waited until they saw it and they caught it and they came to him. We'll look a little bit in chapter 16, but, but a verse I love to teach from is in Matthew 16, 18, where Jesus says, from now on, Peter, whatever you release on earth, that's what gets released in heaven. And Jesus said to them, when they said, you know, the disciples said this is a deserted place. Verse 16, he said, they need not go away. You, again emphasized, give them something to eat. And they replied, we've nothing here but five loaves and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. And he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. You give them something to eat. Jesus is calling them up to action. Discipleship requires action. He could have easily said, okay, I'll take care of them. I'll feed them. 
Instead, he engaged the disciples in the actual process. This is really important in in discipling. Uh, Tim and I were in Canada last week. We did a four-day event really about how how to form disciples who follow the Jesus way. And this is one of the keys. Jesus engaged them in the process. He didn't say, well, I I got it from here, guys. What's happening in this whole episode? Jesus is taking the disciples deeper and deeper into kingdom realities, taking them beyond Jesus himself having to do the miracle. The kingdom is multiplying through them. You know, the disciples think they have nothing to offer. Isn't that so easy for us to feel that way? It's because we look just with natural eyes. You know, this is our challenge, frankly. Our our team here at Impact Nations is to continually encourage and stir one another's faith up because the challenges we're confronted with, we just got another one today from Nepal. We have one today, this morning, from Delhi. We've got challenges in so many countries right now, very specifically right now. It would be easy to say we've only got a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish. We need one another to encourage and stir up one another's faith. Paul said in Romans 1.12, how I long to be with you, that we might be stirred up or encouraged by one another's faith. This is a repeated theme of, of not looking in the natural, but beginning to see with spiritual eyes. Um, remember Elisha and his servant. His servant says, oh, we're toast, we're dead. If he was a Canadian, he'd say we're hooped. Um, and then Elijah says, Lord, open his eyes so he can see the ultimate reality. And then he certainly certainly saw legions of angels. John says, lift up your eyes and see. The epistles are calling us continually to walk by faith. Learning to see with the eyes of faith equals spiritual possibilities. Let me say that again. Learning to see with the eyes of faith equals spiritual possibilities. So, In this episode, the disciples are affected by the need, and what they see in front of them is reality, instead of seeing the ultimate reality of the one who's standing in front of them. We know the theme all the way through Scripture, how often God works most powerfully through the least resources. Uh, There's so many examples. The Gideon, your army's too big. I don't want you to think you did it. Let's get it down to 300. And on and on and on. So I think that's part of what he's doing here. But, but when he says you feed them, he wants them to see this kingdom reality. But secondly, uh, uh, church father Origen, he points out Jesus was being completely practical. There were 5,000 men and there were women and children and they were out in the wilderness, we're told that there wasn't going to be food for 5,000 plus people. At best, they'd find a few small villages. So Jesus doing what he did wasn't plan B. It was the only thing that could be done. There's an Old Testament significance to this whole episode. Matthew is highlighting something that the Jews believed. They believed that when Messiah came, 
They would see the return of bread from heaven. They would see God's gift of manna in the wilderness. And and so this happening would very likely have caused the crowd, or at least lots of the crowd, to see Jesus as the answer of that messianic promise, to see him as the new Moses, as, as the new leader of God's people who would bring them out triumphantly from the wilderness. Verse 19, taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. Pay close attention to that verse. The Gospels are very specific in the wording of this, uh, both in this feeding episode and in other episodes, uh, especially when you compare it to the, the Lord's Supper. For example, look at what we just saw, the key words. Let's make sure we all get it. He took the loaves, he looked up to heaven, He blessed them, he broke the loaves, and then he gave them to the disciples. The Last Supper in Mark's account, 1422, while they were eating, he took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body. When he's with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke 2430, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. It is very likely that all four gospel writers who were writing after the events, at least a generation for the synoptics and probably two for John, but there was a church here and they were using what Jesus said to to teach and reinforce. And so likely all four of them framed their accounts of this feeding in a way that would reflect the Lord's Supper, because that's what the readers were familiar with. The feeding of the 5,000 is presented as a foretaste of the central act of worship in the Christian community. I think that's what Matthew's doing here. And what is the central act? It's what I told you before. The early church called it the great mystery. This feeding both points backward to when Moses and and the manna came and forward to the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, and beyond that to the final end time, eschatological is the word, Lamb's Supper. So the bread that happened and multiplied is both literal and spiritual. We get this, you know, we've had this as a theme through most of this study. It points to the ultimate reality of of the Eucharist. You know, in John's Gospel, chapter 6, he writes with some more detail of what happened in the feeding of the 5,000. And he presents this Eucharistic connection most clearly of all four Gospel writers. John 6, 48 and following. (coughs) Excuse me. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This passage is often read in our gatherings and churches when we are taking the Lord's Supper together. 
In chapter 26, we looked at how Jesus was beyond time and space. He, he was, uh, we said in space, he was the new temple. He said, I'm the temple now. The temple was that intersection point between heaven and earth. <coughs> Pardon me. <coughs> that he's the Lord of sacred time, which is the Sabbath. <coughs> now, excuse me. Now, Matthew is showing us Jesus as the one who is also not only Lord over time and space, but Lord over matter. Jesus multiplied the food. This much we know. I tend to think it was multiplied in the process of the disciples stepping over their fear and their confusion and taking the bit of bread and fish and giving it out as they were uh, instructed to by Jesus. For years, I have said one of the central points of this story is that what we have, the small gift we have, is multiplied in the giving. However it happened, the miracle took place when they took action. No matter how it happened, the disciples were directly involved. Some ways it occurred to me, it it could have been multiplied in Jesus' hands, although logistically feeding 5,000 or more people coming just from him, that would take a long time, but it could be. It could have been multiplied as it was received. Each little piece received and multiplies. St. Hilary said this, Matter came into being. I do not know whether it was on tables or in the hands of those taking it or in the mouth of those eating. The activity of what is invisible is administered by the works of what is visible, showing how the Lord of the heavenly mysteries acts within the mystery of present time. Multiplication is a wonderful miracle. Uh, it is certainly not a, a Sunday school story. Uh, I, I would be able to talk to you for several minutes, stories of multiplication. The first time I ever saw it happen, we, uh, we had a, a small church that was meeting in a neighborhood community. We planned a, a, a dinner for this small church, an agape feast, and someone misunderstood and said it was a community dinner. We had come with prepared amounts of food. I know it was a small church. We had 72 portions. I know that. And then the people came and came and came, and we set up tables and tables. They just kept coming. I had some of the folks come to me and say, what should we do? Should we quick take up a collection and go to the store? And my dear wife said, let's just see what God does. And all I know is, as we handed these out, and there were these pork barbecued buns, 72 of them, as we handed them out and handed them out, bowls of salad, this big bowl of fruit salad, handed it out, handed it out, handed it out. It just kept going. And Christina and I were the last two in the line. We got the last buns and the last fruit. and We had full portions. Now, that's the first time I ever saw it happen. We saw it one time. We were doing a clinic uh, in, uh, in the Philippines, and we went to an area and were told that there'd be a lot of people, but that they had, they had arranged for 500 and I think it was 550 kids to get lunch. So we'd put them in those styrofoam boxes, and we had 550. The only problem was 870 kids showed up, and you know the story. The last person got the last one. 
we, we were handing out medicine. This has happened in Tanzania. It's happened in Kenya. One time we had a huge crowd. At the end of the day, we were handing out this anti-parasite medicine, quite important. And we only had 75 left. We treated hundreds and hundreds all day. We had 75 left. And I said, get them in lines. <laughs> and I wasn't thinking of feeding the 5,000, but just this second, this second for the first time. That's what Jesus did. But anyway, get them in lines. We had 462 people and we had 75 tablets. And the last person got the last one. I don't know how it happens, but that's what happens. Now, one of the other church fathers, Eusebius, points out the significance of this miracle because it points beyond itself to the one who is always at work. He said this, what was done invisibly once brought to light proclaimed who it is that always works invisibly. It was not only at that time that Jesus with five loaves does many great things. In the world, he was not idle or inactive, but was always at work feeding everyone. And verse 20 says, and all ate and were filled. The church fathers saw this episode as an example by which Jesus was teaching the church because, of course, he knew the church was going to follow. He, in fact, commissioned it just two chapters later. And so they understood a few things about this miracle. One, it happened in a place of scarcity. It happened in the wilderness. We know from John that the five loaves were barley. And uh, barley was the coarsest, uh, (laughs) poorest uh, grain to make bread from. It was the food of the poor. Bread and fish were the diet of the peasant class of Galilee. Christostom said this, By choosing this location and by giving away nothing more but bread and fish, proposing the same food to everyone and sharing it, and by offering to one not more than to another, the Lord was teaching humility, self-control, and love. He was also teaching us to be equally well disposed to one another and to hold all possessions in common. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? I don't know that I ever saw that link with Acts 2 till I was studying this. St. Cyril said this, this is again a good symbol for uh, measuring use according to need and not introducing an acquisitiveness that goes beyond what is needed. So there's a great lesson there. So you see there's a spiritual, there's a literal level. It multiplied, they were fed. They were fed. There's a, a moral reading here that, that we've just looked at that gives us an example of how we live our lives in following Jesus. And there's a spiritual, there's something happening in the invisible realm that points right to the Lamb's Supper that is the great mystery. The third section we're going to look at today, Jesus walks on the water. And if you're like me, I go back to a Sunday school class lesson and I think, yeah, I know about that, just like I thought I knew about the feeding of the 5,000. But there's great depth here. Starting at verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. 
When evening came, he was there alone, but by this time the boat, battered by the waves, was far from the land, for the wind was against them. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, and they said, It's a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. So we almost all of us know this story of Jesus. And we've always heard the point of the story is that when Jesus calls you to get out of the boat, trust him and go and keep your eyes fixed on him. But this episode reveals a lot more. Uh, our response when the supernatural breaks into the natural world, it just throws us. It shows us about the true and growing revelation of Jesus' identity. This is a miracle story that's in two acts. Uh, the first act is centered on Jesus. The second is centered on Peter, i.e., the first is centered on Jesus. The second is the church, Christ and the church. In this whole episode, Jesus empowers, and then he rebukes, and then he saves an unsteady church. So let's go back. Verse 22, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Jesus takes time to finish up, to say goodbye, while he sends the disciples away. Jesus shows care for the people he has just ministered to. This is consistent with what we read in verse 14. When he saw them, he, he was moved with compassion. We need, beloved, compassionate ministry that is not in a hurry to get on to the next thing, but stays as long as is needed. To be truthful, being very transparent, when I go and I, I minister in different churches, I can't help but notice how the pastor responds to his flock. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we, we need to take time. We, we need to, to care for them and to send them away with care. Now, with what I just told you, if we understand the spiritual reading of the bread— Jesus, what had he just done spiritually? He had just completed his first Eucharist, the Lord's Supper. This is very interesting for us. There, there's, there's something happening in the spiritual realm. Now, he's just finished that, and then he compels them to leave. It's a strong word. Basically, he commands them to leave. So why? Well... I can only make a few guesses. I think almost certainly he wanted to be alone to pray. I think he wanted to get the disciples away 
so they could get some rest. He sent them ahead. In John's account, we see in the troubled times following the execution of John the Baptist, there's a move now toward Jesus in a political way. John 6, 14 and 15, at the end of John's account of the 5,000, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. When Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Jesus is absolutely consistent. He began the Beatitudes with blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the peacemakers. This is the Jesus way. So after he had dismissed the crowds in an unhurried way, he went up the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. I have a few things I want to say about this. <clears throat> Here we have a wonderful picture, one of many, of the rhythm of Jesus' life. He was ministering with incredible power and authority and quantity, but he was pulling aside to be quiet and to pray. Paul said to the Ephesians, be being filled. It's a continual process. Folks, I want you to know ministry is physically and emotionally draining. Um, but it's also a time when you finish it, it's a time of, of great vulnerability. Um, all kinds of things, depression, um, temptation, uh, hopelessness, all kinds of things the enemy tries to bring in. Just ask any pastor what's their worst day of the week. They'll tell you Monday. So Jesus, at the end of ministry, he goes up to the mountain of ministry. He's in the wilderness. We've got to go to the wilderness. I've said many times, a favorite verse is Song of Solomon 8.5, who is this coming up out of the wilderness, leaning upon her lover? In Mark 1, we see after he does that first episode of ministry, he goes away to be by himself. And they find him and they say, Jesus, come on, everyone's looking for you. And he says, no, it's time to move on. If you only get one or two things out of today, get this. Solitude and silence are the essential foundations of the spiritual life. There's no way around it. There's no such thing as quality time without quantity time. There's no, well, I'm too busy. If you're too busy, stop being controlled, as we said earlier, by your iPhone and your iPad and your schedule. Learn to schedule. I'll give you a practical thing. I schedule. The first two hours of every day is for me and Jesus. And I don't care how busy it is. I schedule that. Solitude and silence are the essential foundation for all spiritual life. There's no getting around it. Verse 24 to 27 but by this time, the boat battered by the waves was far from the land, for the wind was against them. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. But when Jesus saw 
but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Just a few more points on this. There's a practical reading that the spiritual fathers saw, a a literal reading. What's the author's intent? Christostom saw this as an example of Jesus further training the disciples. He used this to train them. He wrote this, Gently and by degrees, Jesus excites and urges the disciples on toward greater responsiveness. Whereas in the previous storm, remember back in chapter 8, they had him with them in the ship. Now they are alone by themselves. In mid-sea, he permits a storm to arise. This is all for their training. The disciples weren't in rebellion. They hadn't made a mistake. They were out there in obedience to what he directed them to do. So they were in God's will. And yet, they were in a terrible storm. Folks, storms in our lives do not serve as determiners of God's will. If we're going to come into maturity, we need to recognize that if if there's storms, if there's difficulty, that doesn't mean we're supposed to turn. We're supposed to press into him and hear what he says. You know, many church fathers saw the boat, (coughs) pardon me, as a type for the church which is very interesting. St. Augustine said this, Meanwhile, the boat carrying the disciples, that is the church, is being tossed about and battered by the storms uh, storms of temptation and trial. Even when the boat is being agitated and tossed about, it is still a boat. It alone carries the disciples and receives Christ on board. Sure, it is in distress and danger in the sea. But without it, we all perish immediately. In this time of storms, and I know there's a great tendency, every generation or half generation thinks this is a time of great storms. But folks, we've got a worldwide pandemic. We've got racial injustice has just divided. We've had political allegiances divided in the church. We, we have storms terrible, terrible storms. In this season, it is more vital than ever to be part of a people walking the Jesus way. Let me say it again. Sure, it is in distress and danger in the sea, but without it, we all perish immediately. Verse 25 Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. I want to talk for just a couple of minutes on this fourth watch of the night. It's very interesting. Much has been made of this uh, throughout uh, the early history of the church and the church fathers. They, They saw significance in this fourth watch that we, frankly, as moderns, we just kind of pass over. We say, well, that means it was between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., which it was. The dark, darkest part of the night, just before the dawn comes, we've all heard teaching like this. But just like we saw in chapter 13 when we looked at the parables, we need to break free from our dualistic way of approaching the Scripture. That 
What does it mean? Which is the right answer? There is not one right answer. There is not one right interpretation. The Holy Spirit uses Scripture to reveal many layers of truth at many different times in our lives. Now, let me give you a few examples of giants, church fathers, Hillary. The first watch was that of the law, the second of the prophets, the third of the Lord's coming in the flesh, the fourth of his return in splendor. That's what, as he just was quiet before the Lord years and years and years, this was something that God was revealing to him. But Chromatius saw the fourth watch representing four dispensations of history. Adam to Noah, Noah to Moses, Moses representing the law to the coming of Jesus, and then the consummation of the ages at Jesus' second coming. Others saw different elements in this narrative that spoke to them. Um, Macarius said this, another church father, The unusual force of the storm reflects what nature feels even when humanity fails to recognize the creative word. Wow! He's saying creation feels it when we don't. It takes me back to Romans 8, 19 to 22. All creation is groaning, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. Let's go on. Even when humanity fails to recognize the creative word. The seed denotes the brine and bitterness of existence. The night is human life. The boat is the world, not the church. See? This differs from uh, Augustine and other fathers. Those who sailed all night are the human race. The contrary wind is the devil's opposition. And the fourth watch is the Savior's coming. We, as moderns, who have been exposed primarily to the historical critical method, go, what do we do with that? What we do is recognize that the Holy Spirit uses passages to touch different things in different lives, to reveal different things at different times. I promise you, they are not wrong. Every one of those, there's truth, deep truth. So in this whole episode, we see an aspect of the mystery of Christ revealed. When Jesus came as the manifestation manifestation and releaser of the kingdom, a new reality broke in. We've talked a lot about that. Kingdom doesn't replace earthly reality. It overlaps it. Uh, Part of truth of the mystery of Christ, that it is not restricted to earthly reality. The kingdom works in earthly reality, but sometimes outside it. I told you before, the temple is an example. uh, Jesus is the new temple, the intersection of heaven and earth. You know, they see him, ah, it's a ghost. It, it's, it's a kingdom reality. It's, it, it's him, but it's not quite like him. I mean, remember uh, Mary Magdalene in the garden. Uh, remember the disciples uh, on the shore, Galilee. Remember the, the road to Emmaus. It's like him, but it's not quite like him. I think that's a picture of, of uh, eternal kingdom of God reality as it comes and touches this earth. Paul addressed this issue in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me read this to you. It's really important. Uh, 42 to uh, 44. In the same way, the resurrection of the... It it is the same way with the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies are planted in the ground when we die, but they will be raised to live forever. Our bodies are buried in brokenness. They'll be raised in glory. They are buried in weakness, but they'll be raised in strength. 
They're buried as natural human bodies, but they will be raised as spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, there are spiritual bodies. The activity of the heaven, of the heavens, breaks in. It gives us a picture of eternity. There will be no lack of bread in eternity. Just like I've told you, there won't be sickness in eternity. There won't be any of the negatives. Revelation 21, 22. But what are we seeing here? We're seeing a taste. As the food multiplies, as Jesus walks on the water, we're seeing a taste of ultimate reality, and it breaks in. I wrote a book several years ago, you can get it if you want, called When Everything Changes. And I wrote it to somehow develop how the kingdom is quite literally manifested in our midst. So Matthew brings us these moments of intersection, feeding the 5,000 and then the 4,000, the transfiguration. I can hardly wait to get to that in chapter 17. He's telling us that Christ is unlimited and so is the kingdom. There's a prophetic element to Jesus walking on the water, a theme that comes up in a number of Old Testament passages. Job 9.8, he alone has spread out the heavens and the marshes and the waves of the sea. Psalm 77.19 has been a life verse for me. Your way was through the sea, your path through the mighty waters, not around them, yet your footprints were unseen. Jesus then says, they're freaking out, and he says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. In the Greek, he says this, take heart. I am. I am. That's it. Do not be afraid. Jesus, in this episode, is revealing and declaring his true eternal identity. Remember in John 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. I told you at the very beginning of this whole series that the church fathers and the early church saw the Gospels as holy ground. Beyond narratives, they were so important to building up the young church, they contained deep revelations of Christ. And because they are holy ground again and again and again, they told the church, approach the Gospels with reverence. There is great treasure approach them with a great anticipation of encountering the risen Christ in them. And this is one of those places. Acts 1 was Jesus, Acts 2 is Peter, and I've got to go quicker. Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come on to the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, started walking on the water, came toward Jesus. But when he noticed the strong wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and caught him, saying to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are the Son of God. Just a few points. Peter, in this story, represents all believers, because all believers are mixed with seasons of great faith and great doubt. Our lives are a mixture of excitement, of kingdom success. Whoa, they get healed. And despair. St. Augustine said this, Notice that the man Peter, who was the symbolic representative of us all, 
is sometimes trusting, sometimes tottering. One moment he's acknowledging Christ to be immortal, the next he's afraid of dying. His request is bold. If it's you, call me out onto the water. But you know what? It's not, it's not just crazy. It comes from walking for two years in a growing discipleship where Jesus was learning and experience and knowing that Jesus had given the disciples power and authority to do what he was doing. These bolder things, my prayers, folks, are so much more than they were 20 years ago. Why? Because I've got 20 years of watching how he, he really meant it when he said, as the Father sent me, so send I you. That's what's going on for Peter. St. Jerome says, Peter allows for no delay. He wraps himself with his garment and at once plunges headlong into the waves. Although the others are silent, he believes that by the will of his master, he can do what Jesus was able to do. And Jesus says, he actually didn't say, why do you doubt? He said, why do you waver? Which I think is a more gentle word. He had faith, but he took his eyes off the supernatural source. And and we know that. We've learned that in Sunday school. Christostom points out that although the real danger was the waves, it's very interesting. It says Peter was afraid of the wind. The wind couldn't hurt him, but that's what scared him. When we succumb to fear, everything is seen as dangerous. So for the church fathers, this this passage trumpeted the supernatural creator who holds all of creation together. Colossians 1.17, he existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. This is what they saw. They saw so much more than a Sunday school lesson, which is fine to have a Sunday school lesson, but there's so much more. Eusebius saw in this episode the incarnation. He said, without the boat, Jesus walks on the sea, so there would be no mistake about his divinity, about him living in the supernatural reality of the kingdom of heaven. He wanted to exhibit his true nature. However, in getting into the boat, he was joining the disciples as one of them, that he is fully human. Bet you didn't see the incarnation in this episode. Christostom said, Who is able to walk on the sea if not the creator of the universe? This is God's only begotten Son, who long ago, according to the will of the Father, stretched out the heavens at the time of Moses in a pillar of cloud, showed the people a way to follow. So he comes into the boat, verse 33, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This verse is the climax of the narrative, not the stilling of the storm. The disciples both worshipped and confessed who Jesus was. This confession is the first of its kind in Matthew's gospel. It anticipates Peter's great confession we'll get to in chapter 16. In the first storm, remember he's asleep in the back of the boat, and he says to the wind and the waves, be still. In the first storm, the disciples were amazed, saying, what sort of man is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, there's a greater revelation. It came through a greater testing. It's that testing that Christostom pointed out. See, by degrees, he was leading them higher and higher. Their response to a deeper revelation, what manner of man is this, becomes, truly, you are the Son of God. Their response to this deeper revelation was worship. 
Folks, this is why we go out to the deeper water. Greater revelation leads to deeper worship, saturated by experiencing the depths of Jesus Christ. So to wrap it up, went a little longer today. Today we've seen Christ revealed. He's Lord over matter, whether bread and fish or the sea. We've seen that uh, the key to outward manifestations of the kingdom is time in solitude with him. We've once again seen that if, as we, as we said from the beginning, all scripture is inspired, but the gospels are like the pinnacle of Mount Sinai. The entire mountain is holy, but the glory of God came down in a powerful way on the peak. Likewise, the gospels are exactly like this. A greater understanding of the gospels is to enter it with a sense of awe. The church fathers spoke of being on the threshold of a palace on the edge of the ocean. So, Lord, please keep taking us deeper and deeper and deeper into who you are, the unshakable riches of the mystery of Christ. God bless you. Thanks for being patient. Went a little longer today. Stay with us in a minute. Tim and I will discuss some of this. Now what? The gospel is meant to be lived. We now invite you to be a part of the discussion as we talk about how to apply this teaching. YouTube viewers can use the comments section below. You can also email your questions and comments to podcast at impactnations.com. And you thought you wouldn't have enough to say? Is that what you said? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you had plenty to say. That uh, Honestly, that little nugget you just gave us a moment ago about the incarnation, him climbing into the boat uh, with them, his representation of the incarnation just hit me. Just, oh, that's huge. That's huge. And then that that progression of, you know, the first episode on the water of uh, who, is, who this? is this man to suddenly uh, <laughs> you are the son of God and worship. Yeah. Uh, that's huge. Yeah. Um, so thanks for that. Uh, very quickly, just before we jump, I do have one question for you. Um, but just before we do that, I want to just let our listeners know uh, that the Impact Nation's Christmas catalog is on its way. Uh, we're starting a little bit earlier this year. Um, although I also, <laughs> I cheaped out on postage because uh, you can get the nonprofit rate, um, which uh, saves us a bunch of money, which is awesome. Uh, more money to those who need it. Uh, but... Uh, I think you get what you pay for, so it may be a little bit slower coming. It's already in the mail, though, so it will be coming soon. Uh, I encourage you, check it out. Uh, when it comes, grab it and have a look through, see what's what's moving you. But also, um, I would say, have a look with your family. And we talked about this yesterday. We jumped on here. But we're learning about families doing this together as a, uh, a family project and how working with children, you know, Hey, what, what in here can we do together as a family? And I think that's really powerful. So, uh, I would encourage you to check that out. If you haven't seen your catalog in the next week or so, give us a shout, uh, just write to us podcast at impactnations.com and we'll be sure to send you one in the mail so you can get that. Um, all right. So a quick question for you, just a pastoral question. Cause I, I love drawing on your years of pastoral care too. Uh, 
earlier in this teaching today, you mentioned uh, storms are not the determiner of the Lord's will. Yeah. Um, and I, I want you to kind of put a little bit more meat on the, those bones if you could. I, I suspect that's coming from a place of you having encountered a lot of people who have met obstacles, met difficulty, and thought, okay, well, I guess that's, I guess we're not in line with God's will. I guess I didn't hear right. I, yeah, because things get difficult. And I'm asking, I'm, I'm hanging on this one for a very selfish reason. Um, <laughs> you know this, I'll tell our listeners. Uh, every time I leave town to go do ministry with Impact Nations, something goes wrong at my house. And so... You know, in September, you and I went to Bulgaria. Uh, the day we left, my air conditioner broke. It was 96 degrees that week. Uh, that did not bless my family. Uh, this time, we we're in Canada. I get a call at midnight. The water heater just blew up, and there's water everywhere and no, no hot water for showers and things like that. I had a chat with my 11-year-old son the other night, and I said, why do you think that happens? Like, what is going on? And he just flat out said, well, I think the devil doesn't like you going and doing ministry. So he tries to discourage you. And I, and I, I said, you think it's going to work? He said, no, it's not going to work. You just keep doing what you do, <laughs> which really blessed me. Oh, but that's so, uh, so I, that's a different point of view, which is, hey, we, we have a very real opposition, which is going to try and stop us from accomplishing the, the will of the Father. Um, you've probably encountered both of those. How do you pastor people through opposition and their assumptions about what the opposition might mean? Well, I get my grandson to get on the phone <laughs> with him because that's exactly right. We're in a war. Yeah. And uh, no, everything doesn't happen for God's reason. Mm -hmm. It happens for the reason that we're in a war. Yeah. And if we thought that circumstances were the compass, how, as as Toby said, how easy would it be yeah. Uh, for the enemy to just change our course and change our direction. Mm -hmm. They are not the sign of God's agreement. Yeah. We need to go way deeper than that, way deeper. We, that's, I go back to what has become like a central theme here. Mm -hmm. We need lives of solitude and silence with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as he speaks to us. We also, he speaks to us through the peace of Christ, mm -hmm. right? Uh, Colossians 3, 15. So that's what, I, that's what I think. I don't really have a lot to add to your 11-year-old son. <laughs> um, but it's really important because I think it's, when we do that, I think it's frankly a byproduct of kind of a shallow faith mm. that we've not taught people to dig deep. Yeah. I, I mentioned this when I was preaching up in Canada on Sunday, but the giving people permission to lament, to tell the Lord when they are scared, when things are difficult. Uh, and certainly we see that here with Peter. Peter, poor guy, gets a bad rap. He, you know, oh, save me, I'm sinking. I think I would have said the same thing, quite frankly, that I don't want to sink to the bottom of the sea. Where's the fine line between getting real with God in, in our fears, our temptations, um, our just sheer exhaustion from the storm versus building up our faith and, you know, I'm speaking positively I and got we're going to overcome. Yeah. Or on the other side, woe is me and becoming a spiritual viewer. Yeah. I think that it is, uh, I really encourage people to spend time in the Psalms in mm -hmm. all of the Older church traditions, liturgical traditions, they 
have so much emphasis put on the Psalms because they give us a uh, a picture of a reality, of a Mm -hmm. deep reality. Now, if I always end up in lament at the end of the Psalm, I don't think it's done its work. I don't think we've done our work in it. Yeah. But um, I, you know, I... I really have to just smile when I see people and everybody's always great. Everything's just great. And uh, I just, that isn't life. Jesus wept. Jesus withdrew. Mm -hmm. So, but there is a balance there. I I mean, I know in leadership, there are times you just, as as a pastor of mine once said, you got to put your faith face on because you're leading others into a place of faith. Yep. And if you're yep. spiritually, or if you're getting real with everybody about where you're at, that may not bless them. That helps me because to be clearer, that time in the Psalms, mm-hmm. I'm in the Psalms till it brings me out the other side. Yeah. So I'm out the other side. Yeah. Uh, I don't just stay there. You don't stay there. Because the Psalms don't stay there. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Good. Well, I hope that's been helpful. Certainly was helpful for me. Uh, This has been a really in-depth look at at that chapter. And again, I just, I want to go back and listen again to that last, the last act of that miracle was just really hit me hard. Uh, So thanks for And isn't it interesting how Eucharistic the -hmm. church for a thousand years saw that episode. Yeah, and we've lost that. Yeah, we've lost it. And you know, we as charismatics, we get excited about the multiplication, and it is exciting. And you know, I'm I'm always happy when God does that. <laughs> sure. Um, a lot. But uh, one time, I was just thinking, I was in Zambia, and I was with just a small group. We were separate from another group, and we'd brought some bag lunches. I mean, just uh, whatever, ham and cheese sandwiches, because we were going to go out and do ministry avenue. And we found this place with a little shade, and we, uh, I'm trying to remember, it's probably just half a dozen of us, and about half a dozen kids showed up, uh, you know, preteen, early teen showed mm-hmm. up, and they looked so hungry. And we only had this little bit, and uh, we just started giving it away. We didn't even make a big deal. Just one by one, we just started mm-hmm. giving away, giving half, because we knew we had a lot of work to do. And I remember that for me, too. When we were done... Again, they were fully fed. How many? Sorry, and we were fully fed. You said fed. half a dozen, but I think half a dozen of us of you, yeah, and about a half a dozen kids. What I'm saying is, I had enough for for one sandwich for six people, and twelve people ate. Oh, I see what you're saying. Twelve yeah, yeah, people yeah. ate until we were full. Yeah, it wasn't even. Oh, well, that's all there is. Yeah. I, you know, it, people ask me all the time, well, "How did you do it? Did you watch?" It? You say, <laughs> no, it just happens, and usually yeah. it takes. Near the end when you figure it out. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. So it's been very exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. And yet there's so much more to that. But that story goes way past that. Yeah. In in the things I hope that I opened up today. Absolutely. Both, you know, Eucharistically, this whole thing of heaven breaking in and emerging. Yeah. You know, Jesus didn't look like an apparition in the garden. He was a man. Yeah. But he was a bit different. Um. It's this merging yeah. that we're invited into, mm. and uh, we've got to stay in the spirit. I was just reading Galatians yesterday, and he's on him again. He says, what happened? You started in the spirit. Why are you in the flesh? Yeah. 
just look by that he doesn't mean going to movies <laughs> he means why are you, why are you just living according to the national natural realm mm-hmm. lift up your eyes and see yeah amen all right next week matthew 15 i was thinking i might do that one you <laughs> very are good you're I'm, very catching prophetic. On. I'm getting there i'm starting to figure this out i hope it was worthwhile today for yeah. people and folks just if you haven't got it Besides the riches of Matthew, it's our track to learn to go much deeper into the Scripture and really deeper into Christ, who, mm. after all, is the Word. Indeed. The, the Scripture is the Bible. The Word is Jesus. Mm. Well, there you have it, folks. Uh, I hope this has been helpful for you. We look forward to seeing you again next week. We are here every Thursday, 3 p.m. Mountain Time. So glad to have you. Uh, We're live on Facebook, YouTube, uh, and then after the fact, you can catch that on either of those platforms uh, or audio. If you head to impactnations.com slash podcast, you can listen to the audio there or uh, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and it'll just get delivered to you. Uh, Do check out the Impact Nations catalog, uh, Christmas catalog. It is on its way to you. We're really excited about it this year. Uh, We'll see you again next week. Thanks. Have a great week. Thanks.